Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Hey, Gimel, the third chapter of Megillah Esther. Achar hadvarim ha'ela. After these events, Gidal ha'melech achashverosh, the king achashverosh, raises and promotes as Haman ben Hamdasa. Haman, the son of Hamdata, who is Ha'agagi, who are sages, or I should say are prophets, finger him specifically as the Agagite. That's his name. Of course, it's possible he was known as Ha'agagi, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but uh, there's certainly a lot of meaning to the fact that he's called Ha'agagi. Vayinasehu, the king, raises him, he advances him ahead of everybody else. Vayasem Kiso, he places his chair, me'akol hasarim, higher than all of the other ministers, asherito, who are together with him. Ah, there's so much to say here. Okay. First question. Achar hadvarim ha'ela. After these things, after these events. After which events? What is the connection between an attempted assassination plot, which we learned about at the end of chapter 2, and Haman's being raised to greatness. Like, if it would say, and after these things, Mordechai was raised to a new position of prominence, that would make sense. They try to kill the king. Mordechai discovers it. Maybe Esther would have found new, new favor and that she would have a, a, a new influence. I understand. But what is, what is the Megillah telling us after these events? What is the connection between these events and the other? Well, the Gemara in Megillah says something very interesting about the words Achar Hadvarim Ha'ela. The Gemara asks exactly this question. My Achar. What's Achar? What's after? What happened? So the Gemara says, Amar Rava. Rava said, Achar Shabara HaKadosh Baruch Hu Rafua After Hashem had created the healing potion, then the illness could begin. In other words, Hashem creates the solution before He creates the problem. What's the problem that we're going to encounter? You all know. You're right ahead. There's going to be a final solution. They're going to want to annihilate the Jews. How is that going to be able to happen? Because Haman is going to advance this. How could Haman do it? Who's Haman? Oh, well, Haman becomes very powerful and prominent. So after his promotion, he is in a position to be able to do this. So after we have... Esther is the queen. And we have Mordechai written down for doing a wonderful thing, saving the king's life, but never being remunerated. Now we have everything that's ready. Jewish people will do tshuva, they will turn to Hashem, miracles will happen, and the Jewish people will be saved. By what will they be saved? By Queen Esther and by Mordechai. Queen Esther, because she is going to cash in her points, so to speak. She's going to say, hey, I saved your life. The king is going to be indebted to Esther. And then he's going to find out who is some... You hear the story, he says, Oh, who is that? Mordechai. What was done for him? When does the miracle of Purim begin? Which we're going to study about later. And, and that's why there's a custom that the Balkora, the one who's reading the Megillah, actually is supposed to raise his voice. The answer is, On that night, the king couldn't sleep which is a discussion for a different class when we get there. <laughs> so the king can't sleep, that's a miracle? Yeah, it actually is a miracle. Because that's when he can sleep, and that's when he's going to have the chronicles brought before him, and that's when we're going to discover what happened to Mordechai, and that's the beginning of Haman's end. 
So, after the healing, after the salvation, after everything is in place for the Jewish people's being saved, now Haman gets promoted. And this is a general concept. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Makadim Refuah Lamaka. The healing always precedes the illness. The Amr Ablevi, Ablevi said, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu Makas Yisrael, God does not strike Israel, Elein Kain, Beid Olahem, Refuah Unless he first creates the bomb that which will be able to alleviate the suffering and the pain and the impact. Shanemar, kirifei li Yisrael, nigla of an Ephraim. After we have the idea of refuah, of healing for Israel, that's when the sin of Ephraim, which is emblematic of the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom is sinned, the northern kingdom is destroyed in Israel, the Shvatim are scattered and dispersed, they become the lost tribes, but first Hashem prepares the healing. First He brings the solution in place, which is not a given. We have freedom of choice. But when we will choose appropriately, everything has already been prepared for us to fix the situation. So now you know the, the meaning of Acher. And actually, Rashi says exactly this. Rashi drawing on the, the Gemara, he says, that this healing has been created so that it will be a savior for the Jewish people. And the Sif Sicham explains, what's bothering Rashi? What is the Pasuk telling us? What do we need to know that all of a sudden, what about the previous details leads us into the current situation of Haman's being raised to greatness? This is the answer. HaKadosh Baruch prepared everything before the troubles unfolded. By the way, in case you think that this happened with the snap of a finger, think again. The Ibn Ezra says it was five years later. Which means the Megillah is a story that does not take place over a few short years. This is, this is when you're stepping back in time. It's a panorama of a, a, a significant chunk of time in which slowly but surely things unfolded. So Achar means five years afterward. And Ibn Ezra adds that there is an opinion that Haman is Memuchan. Now Memuchan we talked about earlier. Memuchan is the fellow who said, off with her head, get rid of Vashti. So it's, it becomes even more fascinating here. Who is the one who ultimately plants the seeds of salvation and redemption? Haman himself. Because it was Haman who ensured that Vashti would be removed. Vashti's removal paves the way for Esther's arrival. And Esther's arrival is what allows for Mordechai to save the king's life. So now all the variables are in place for the Jewish people's salvation. And it was all initiated by Memuchan, who is actually Haman himself. Which is even more fascinating, as they say. Now, before, before we, we, uh, we, we go on to the rest of the Pasuk, I want to share with you two more details from this, uh, the notion of Achar Hadvarim Eila was only after this happened. The Vilna Gaon says something very interesting. The Medrash tells us that whenever the word Hamelech appears in the Megillah, it's a veiled reference to God. The Megillah, of course, is the only book of the entire scripture that doesn't have God's name. But when we have the word Hamelech, it's, it's alluding to Hashem. 
So he says, Achar hadvarim ha'ila, Gidal ha'melech. On a literal level, who is Gidal ha'melech? Achashverosh. However, at a deeper level, Achashverosh is not really calling the shots. He doesn't even know why he's doing what he's doing. Really, this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this, he says, he connects to the Gemara, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Bara HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the fool of Makar. Only after Hashem puts everything in place, when Mordechai and Esther are ready, waiting in the wings, then Gidala Melech, then Malkish Aleilam, then the master of the world is able to go ahead and allow Haman to rise to greatness. The Malbim adds that, as we learned previously, it was unusual for Achashverosh to forget what was done. He didn't like to be in debt to anybody. He should have paid his debts quickly. But Hashem causes him to forget what Esther said. And the Melech, who usually wants to repay and remunerate those who did favors for him, never ends up repaying Esther or Mordechai. And instead, quite to the contrary. So what does he do? He raises Haman. He raises Memuchan. So actually, the Malbim says, no, no, no. That, that's, that, there's a connection there. This is even, the twist is even stranger. Achashverosh was now appreciative of the fact that Esther was in place. How did Esther get there? Because of a man named Memuchan. Ibn Ezra tells us who was Memuchan. Haman. So, we talked about it at the end of chapter 2. We talked about this idea that it was totally unnatural for Achashverosh not to repay Mordechai immediately. It was unnatural for him to forget about it. He didn't like to owe anybody anything. Because, you know, to owe somebody a favor means you're beholden. The king doesn't want you to be beholden. You did me a favor, you paid, finished. Accounts cleared. So it gets even stranger, says the Malbim. Not only does he not remunerate Mordechai, he remunerates Haman. So it's not like the king forgot about remunerating. It's not like he didn't show appreciation. He said, oh, look at this. Esther saved my life. But Esther said it in the name of Mordechai. And it's actually recorded in the Chronicles that Esther says it in the name of Mordechai. But somehow Hashem makes Achashverosh think right. Esther saved my life because Mordechai told her. So I should remunerate Haman. That's the whole miracle here. So everything is so unusual. As we talked at the end of the last chapter, you see the hand, the unmistakable hand of Hashem because nothing follows a logical pattern. If anything, Mordechai should have been rewarded. Esther should have been rewarded. Ibn Ezra just told us this is five years later. So five years later, he says, Oh, Esther saved my life. I must reward Haman, because he, five years ago, is the one who causes Vashti to be killed. So that's why Haman is raised to his new position, and Achashverosh uh, promotes him to greatness. And interestingly, it turns out that Haman's greatness is actually a result of who? Like Haman climbs the ladder of power on whose back? On the back of Mordechai and Esther. So Haman can't even convince himself that he got there by dint of his own duties or of his own abilities or his own achievements. He got there because of them. He's just an abuser. He's just taking advantage of somebody else's hard work, somebody else's achievements, and that's how Haman ends up getting his promotion. So that's the meaning of Achar Advar Ma'ila. Now, the Megillah tells us Haman, the son of Hamdasa, and the Megillah tells us that he is an Agogi. Does that mean it was his grandfather's name? Who, 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 is, who is this? The Targum Sheni, which, as I told you, is like a Midrashic 
commentary on the Megillah in, Ar- in Aramaic and as a Targum. So the Targum Sheni says like this. Basar Pizgomaya Ilin after this happened, Rabbi Malka Achashverosh has Haman, Achashverosh raised Haman, Bar Hamdata Ha'agagaya, the son of Hamdasa, who is the Agagaya. And now the Targum Sheni begins to tell us his lineage. So we have Haman, is the son of Hamdasa. Okay, that's one, one parent that we go through. Bar Serach. Hamdasa is the son of Serach. Serach is the son of Buza. Buza is the son of Aphiloitas. Aphiloitas is the son of De Yusuf. De Yusuf is the son of Prom. Prom is the son of Maadei. Maadei is the son of Balakan. And Alakan is the son of Antimoram, who is the son of Hadiram, who is the son of Parmashta. We're going back 11 generations here. Okay? Who is the son of Ayazasa, 12 generations. Who is the son of Agag, 13 generations. Who is the son of Sumke, 14 generations. Who is the son of Amalek. So Haman's 15 generations from Amalek who is the son of Eliphaz, 16 generations, the eldest son of Esau, 17 generations. 18 generations ago, Amalek's, Haman's grandfather is Yitzchak Avino. 18 generations earlier. Now comes the obvious question. The, the Megillah doesn't tell us all these details. This is like the, the Medrash is telling us, going, is tracing his lineage all the way back. This is, this is Amalek, the famous Amalek, the Amalek that we read about in the Torah, the Amalek that the Jewish people are supposed to destroy because their bloodline is rotten and sordid and they only will bode evil. And there's no compromise with this kind of evil. And that's who Haman is. So the obvious question then becomes, why is he called Ha'agagi? How do we choose, of all the generations, how do we end up choosing Agag? Why don't you call him, if you want to go back to his real lineage, call him Ha'amaleki, because Amalek was a nation. None of these other people were nations. Well, you want to go back to his originals, call him Esavite, Eliphazite. How did he choose Agag? I mean, this is just another one of the names. What is the deeper message of this idea of Agag? So there is, of course, a very, very profound concept that's being conveyed to us over here. I think you all know that Shaul HaMelech was the great-great-grandfather of Mordechai HaTzadik. Mordechai is Ish Yemini. And we're going to talk about that. Right? Ish Yemini, Yabishushan Abira. And we, 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 now we're going to, we did talk about it. At the beginning of chapter 2, we introduced Mordechai. And we say, who is Mordechai? We went through the lineage of Mordechai. Mordechai ben Yor ben Shimi ben Kish Ish Yemini. And the Targum Sheni told us who is this referring to? Tagum Sheni, also when it comes to Mordechai, gives us the whole history that Mordechai goes back through a whole bunch, the son of Yor, the son of Shimi, the son of Shmida, the son of Bana, the son of Eil, the son of Michal, the son of Mipibashis, the son of Yehonatan, the son of Shaul, the son of Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Tzror, the son of Afia, the son of Shachrim, Ben Azia, Ben Shishak, Ben Michal, Bar Aliel, Ben Amiud, Ben Shaftia, Ben Betuel, Ben Pitan, Ben Yerucham, Ben Hananiah, Ben Zvavdi, 
Ben Alafel, Ben Shamri, Ben Zechariah, Ben Ben all these names until we get Ben Giza, Ben Aza, Ben Gedo, Ben Bela, Ben Binyamin. All the way back to Binyamin. So really, when it comes to Mordechai, we call him the son of Yoyer, the son of Shimi. And then we just go to, say, Ben Kish, we go three generations. And after three generations, we trace him back to his origin. Who's his origin? Ish Yemini, Binyamin. So he is a Benjaminite. He's a Benjaminite. Why don't we, how does, like, so if Mordechai and Esther, are the, uh, Mordechai, pardon me, and Haman are the two sides, so if he is Ish Yemini, going back to Binyamin, he should be Isham Aleki. That's the, that's the counterweight. Or the, even Ish Elifazi. What's the issue with Argog? So our sages tell us that Haman, who traces his ancestry back to Agag, is a very important part of the story. Shaul HaMelech, who was the first king of the Jewish people, was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. That's the mitzvah. Mitzvah of Mini Melech is, he has three cardinal responsibilities, and one of his cardinal responsibilities is to destroy Amalek. That's the job. Shaul failed. In what way did he fail? He left the royal family. He felt a personal affinity with another royal. He did not kill Agag. He was a monster, a Mengele, an Eichmann, a horrible person. He didn't kill him. Shmuel Hanavi comes and he personally kills this evil man, this Agag. However, the Gemara tells us that before Shmuel Hanavi killed him, Agag managed to sire a child. And his mistress, with whom was holding his child, ran away. So Agag, who has a child, and ultimately that child has a child, has a child, who later is the one who gives birth to Haman. That's Vayazasa. Interestingly, Haman has a child named Vayazasa too. He's a really bad guy. So this Vayazasa was fathered by Agag just before Shmuel Hanavi got him. Shmuel, of course, is a Levi. And Shaul is from the tribe of Binyamin. So where Shaul HaMelech failed, his great-great-grandchildren, Mordechai and Esther, succeeded. In other words, they have to undo what Shaul's mistake was. The Amalekites almost didn't exist. The only Amalekite left was Agag. And that's who Haman traced his lineage to. He was Ha'agogi. Ha'agogi becomes like the Amaleki, but it's the modern incarnation because the Jewish people almost destroyed Amalek, but they didn't destroy Amalek. And now Agag's great-grandson, Haman, is poised to bring about the genocide of the Jewish people. So this is a little bit of, of background insofar as who he is. And why, why is this so relevant? Why is this so, so important? Because we have to understand that this is a battle against Amalek. And here's the first time we, um, uh, you know, Ibn Ezra tells Mamukhan is Haman. But Haman there is just a courtier. He's just part of the story of how Vashti is taken out of context. She's removed from the picture. And Esther becomes the queen instead. But he doesn't display his Amalekite tendencies. Now he's going to become the Amaleki. This is the rise of Amalek again. This is the rise of the Agagites. That's why he's called here Haman ben Hamdasa Ha'agagi. So what is Amalek? 
Amalek, the Haman is the idea of Amalek, the idea of Agag, represents the essence of archival. The Kielos Yaakov says that the name Haman indicates that he is rooted in the deepest, the most profoundest depravement of what's called Klippa, the darkest of the dark. Original sin for the Jewish people, for the Torah, is the concept of eating from the forbidden fruit. And who was a critical player in that story? The Nachash Hakadmoni, the serpent. And the serpent, he shows up in history at various times. The Pharaoh is likened to the serpent. And here too, the Yekilis Yaakov says there is a direct link between Haman and the essence of Klippa. Because the name Haman is an acronym, he says, Hu Mishorash Nachash. He is a branch from the trunk of the Nachash. He represents that archival. He's rooted in the serpent. That Ahmad says that Haman's spiritual source, and spiritual doesn't mean holy, but it means his, everything has to have a spiritual source. His spiritual source is an evil that we never saw before. This is the first time this evil is revealing itself. Even Amalek couldn't imagine of succeeding the way Haman intended to. Amalek wanted to kind of take the edge off. He said, ah, the Jewish people are not so fearsome. You don't have to have so much respect for them. Famous example in the Medrash, of the, everybody's afraid to go into this boiling hot bath, and one wild man jumps in. And he got burned. But after that, it wasn't so hot anymore. So Amalek was the first one to attack the Jewish people. He just got the Torah, he just left Mitzrayim, but he didn't get the Torah yet, actually, the first time. And everybody is in awe of Israel, Amalek attacks. And they murdered. And they pillaged, and they left, they inflicted a deep, deep damage. Even though the Jewish people managed to survive, they inflicted deep damage. Damage we never recover from, actually. So this idea of, of the final solution, a final genocide, this only shows up at this point. Even the Pharaoh, Bilam, Balak, they didn't intend full genocide. The Pharaoh wanted to leave the woman alive, just kill the babies, he was afraid of a savior. If he wanted to kill all the Jews, he was to kill all the Jews. He wanted to kill the babies so a savior shouldn't be born. He wanted to keep a slave people under his thumb. Bilam and Balak, they, they, they wanted to curse the Jewish people. They didn't want the Jewish people to succeed, but they didn't try to implement the final solution. A Amalek, this is, comes to its full fruition, if you will. It's full development with Haman, who introduces the final solution. In modern terminology, this is Hitler. Haman is Hitler. It's the same spark. It's the same darkness. Same evil, the same deprivation. And this is why Haman is, we talk about this idea of Agag. There is a, a, a beautiful rumination from the Rebbe about Purim, one of the very early years, Sikha that the Rebbe delivered on Purim in 1959. It's an edited Sikha, actually. And I can't really go over all the details of the Sikha, but the Rebbe goes to the Pasuk of La Yehudim Ha'isa'ora V'simcha V'sasa V'yikar. He says there was light and there was... It was, it was beauty, and it was gladness, it was rejoicing, and he explains what these things are. The Gemara identifies them. It's filled with Shabbos. And the Rebbe asks why each of these things, and he goes through a, a very, very profound analysis. When we get to that Pasuk, Bezrat Hashem, we'll, we'll learn that whole Sikha together. But there is a footnote in that, in that Sikha where the Rebbe connects the whole theme to Amalek. The, 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 the gist of, of, that, of that explanation is that Haman opposed the idea and ideal of spirituality and religion being a part of 
everyday life. Whatever, spirituality is fine. Be spiritual, be religious, compartmentalize it. It doesn't have to, nor should it be allowed to have an influence on the greater or bigger picture of life. Life is life. A part of life is spirituality. This is the idea of a Malik, a Malik idea. We can tolerate religion. We can even possibly respect it, but we cannot embrace it. Don't get too excited. And that's how Malik's whole notion is. Calm, calm down, cool the ardor, cool the passion, don't get carried away. Okay, it's nice, you have this religion, that religion. We respect all, all faith systems, all ideals, all ideas. You know, there's, place, there's some place for faith too. We can allow that. You know, it may have some redeeming qualities too. But it's not, it's not a way of life. It's not, it's not a def- definition of, really, of the being of who a person is. This is the concept of Amalek. That's what Amalek represents. And Amalek, by his, by his source, and Haman, who is the development of Amalek, hates and detests the concept of super-rationality. So everything is rational. Everything has its space. I can respect religion. I can find a place for it. I can find a use for it. So the klipa of Amalek is a sense of cool indifference. Academic. Don't, don't try to sell me Kabbalah's oil, says Amalek. Amalek says, there's no acceptance of a yoke. The acceptance of a yoke indicates there's something that's loftier, that's transcendent, that's greater. We don't buy that. Nothing to talk about. So, Haman, or Amalek, can agree that there is some logic in faith, or faith teachings. There's a certain beauty there's room, there's certain rationality to it. But that's only in the arena of the soul. That's where it belongs. And it can't be exported from there. Very interestingly and tragically, a major faith system is based on this concept. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. In other words, the compartmentalization of different kingdoms. There's a godly kingdom, and there's a devil kingdom. There is everyday life, and then there's a holy life. Like separation of church and state has value because we shouldn't have a state religion. State religion means you either convert to be like us or we kill you. That's how it is in the Muslim countries. All the theocracies of the Muslim countries, that's how they function. If we don't kill you, if we tolerate you, we demote you, we oppress you, we tax you to death, and every once in a while we'll you know, kill or rape a little just to remind you who you are. The Western world the Christian uh, civilization has come around to the idea that we shouldn't be oppressing anybody, we should be tolerating everybody. Everybody should have the freedom of, of, to practice their religion and worship God as they please, and this is a good thing. However, it becomes like secular fundamentalism where anything that's slightly connected to religion is, is bad. And you have to remove any vestige of faith. You can't talk about God. Like God becomes a threat to freedom which is ridiculous. So that's why the idea that, you know, you can't mention God's name in a, in a school. You can talk about every Narishkite possible. You can promote atheism, but don't, God forbid, say God. Right? So, so the Rebbe, unlike most of the Jewish groups, believe very strongly that there should be a concept of God in the schools. And he pushed for it. He said there should be a moment of silence. Separation of church and state means a moment of silence. It means that nobody should tell you which God and how to pray to God. And you don't have to say, this Lord's Prayer or that Lord's Prayer. But make space. Make space. Your parents are teaching you. Your parents teach you menschlichkeit. They teach you faith. So just think for a moment that someday 
you are going to have to give a din v'cheshbon, a reckoning, an accounting, a calculation. Now, the Jewish groups who don't have Torah values, but instead have replaced Torah values with liberal values, they went crazy. This is terrible. This is going to be a disaster to the cause of anti-Semitism. Quite the contrary. When there's no God in people's lives, that's where anti-Semitism comes from. Hitler was an atheist. Stalin was an atheist. The worst anti-Semites in the modern era were all atheists. People who have faith, people who believe in something, generally will respect other people who believe in something. That's my experience. I, don't, I, don't, I, I find the fact I, I find the anti-Semitism and I deal with plenty of it I find the hatred towards Jewish people coming primarily from the atheistic sector not from the faith sector at least certainly not from the Christian faith sector I'm very, I have many many nice relationships with different faith leaders and, or people who are faith inspired and there's a sense of respect and so it should be so this is what Haman can't take Haman can't say don't bring religion don't bring God into everyday life Right? This is like the Hitchens. This is what his whole big thing, Dawkins, Hitchens. This is what they, they rave about. They rave with this anger, with this, this almost like a lunacy. Why are you so angry? You don't want to believe in God? Don't believe in God. Why are you so angry? So because it's not true. That's your opinion. The, the, uh, you know, Queen of England is not really better than anybody else either, by the way. She doesn't have better blood than anybody else. In fact, she probably has inbreeding over there from the same royal families. She probably has worse genetics. And by looking at her kids, and then too much nachas over there. Okay, so, 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 does anybody get angry? Either you believe in the monarchy, or you don't believe in the monarchy. That's fine. That's fine. I don't care. You know, it's nice. I, I happen to think it's nice for English kids or even Canadian kids to have a, a, a role model other than somebody who gets married every six months and lives a debauched life, like her son kind of did. But she has a, she, she's pretty moral. Like she's 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 a clean clean living. You know, nothing wrong if kids look up to somebody with clean living. That's, I'm okay with that. But again, whether you, whether you want to believe that the monarchy is intrinsically sacred or something fantastic about it or not, is irrelevant. You know, and uh, Shmuley Botech made this argument very, very compellingly when he was, when he, when he Margaret with Hitchens. He said, what are you getting so excited about? What are you angry about? Why does it bother you so much? You know, it's not, not true. Fine, it's not true. But atheists are all angry. Why the anger? Why the angst? There's a lot of things which probably aren't true. God is true, actually, but from their perspective. So this is Amalek. Amalek can't stand it. He hates it. And he wants the holiness only to be in the realm of Kedusha. And therefore, Kedusha, or holiness, which becomes within a Yiddishkeit situation, represents who we are. And our ideal in Yiddishkeit is not that we should be holy in a synagogue or in the, in the lecture hall, but rather, that in all of your ways you know him, that everything you do is part of serving Hashem. This is what we would call supra-rational. It is a devotion, a dedication that is beyond the lines of, of logic. And that's what Haman couldn't stand. And that's why Haman seeks to destroy the Jewish people. And that's why Amalek can't stand the Jewish people. As Hitler, Yomach said, the Jews gave the world a conscience. The conscience is not a logical thing. The conscience touches a very, very deep part of us. And he said the conscience has to be destroyed. So this is what Haman was about. This is why the Megillah fingers him as not just being Ben Hamdasa, so in case there's another Haman, you know which Haman it is. But it's Haman Ben Hamdasa, Ha'agogi. We're talking Amalek. We're talking about Shaul Amalek's mistake. What was Shaul Amalek's mistake? He approached the mitzvah logically and rationally. He said, I'm going to bring offerings. He was supposed to kill all the animals. No, I'm not going to kill. I'm going to bring offerings. And what does Shmuel Hanavi tell Shaul? He says, Tov Shmoa Mizevach Tov. 
your offerings are meaningless because what you're supposed to do is obey instructions. You're supposed to do what I told you. You know, imagine the mother tells the little girl, go upstairs, clean your room. She comes up an hour later, the room is a mess. But mommy, I drew you a beautiful flower. I made you a picture. I didn't ask you to make a picture. I asked you to clean your room. So when we serve Hashem by our own intelligence, which is Shaul Melech's mistake, we end up leaving Amalek alive. That's where Agag comes from. And here, Mordechai is going to represent the polar opposite. He's going to be the lo yichr, the lo yishtachava. He's not going to bow his head. And Haman is going to throw a lottery, which is again reaching for something which is transcendent of the rhyme and reason, something which is random. And that randomness that Haman seeks is how he wants to counterbalance, so to speak, the beyond rhyme and reason devotion that Mordechai represents. As we will, this thesis will continue to unfold as you see as you move away through the Megillah. But this is just, I'm just introducing it now because we come to the term Haagagi. So that explains why Haman is identified as such. Can we trace Hitler to Amalek? Can we trace Hitler to Amalek? Um, I can't. But it is a very interesting thing to note that the word Aryan and Iran come from the same etymology. Very interesting to note. And it's even chilling that today the greatest threat to the Jewish people is coming from Iran. And the Iranians and the Aryans have spoken in the same tongue. And just like the world didn't care when the Aryans spoke about their baleful intent, the world seems to be looking the other way when the Iranians speak about Ahmad al-Islam, similar terminology. Abish will help us, like Takum Pamayam Soda, and uh, there'll be Yeshua's. Everything will work out in the end. It's very interesting. I find it very compelling and interesting that the last Mimer of the Rebbe, which many consider to be the Rebbe's last will and testament, is all about the challenge coming from Haman. It's all about overcoming Haman. It's all about overcoming, and now, our challenge now, our greatest challenge, is coming from the exact same place where Purim came from. Same place. Same, so, so everything's the same, Every, exactly the same. The only difference is not called Persia now; it's called Iran, which has the etymology of Aryan. Red hair, by the way, is a Persian thing. A, and 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 historians say that the Germanic tribes migrated from Persia. That's that's their origin, their their origin, their genetic origins are actually in, in Persia, which would um, lend a compelling, although not conclusive theory that this is actually, they were the seed of Amalek. And they left some of their cousins back in Iran. But again, this is, I, I, this, none, none of that is factual. You know, you ask the question, I'm responding. I, I certainly don't know about anything in, in a factual way. What, what, did you, what I could say is that uh, on a spiritual level, they are certainly blood brothers. That's for sure. It's interesting that the Prime Minister of Israel's name is Benjamin. I don't know if he'll still be the prime minister. I hope he'll be. Just, just interesting. It's very interesting. The prime minister of Israel today? The person who's been, the Paul Revere, who's been blowing the whistle and, and saying, hello world, hello. His name is Binyamin. It's just interesting. The Cholofer. That's, this, that's not Torah. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's my suppositions. I don't know if that's true or not. So let's go back to the to the Megillah. Let's 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 stick to the good book. Vayinasa Ehu. Vayinasa Ehu means he raises him up. But before it says Vayinasa Ehu, it says Gidal Hamelech. 
the Gidal HaMelech means he was made great, he was magnified, Gidal HaMelech HaChashverosh, and then it says, Vayinaseyu, he made him great, and he raised him, and he promoted him. So the question is, what is the meaning of the double terminology? Why does it start off by saying, Gidal HaMelech? First, Haman was promoted, and then, Vayinaseyu, he raises him or advances him above all of the other ministers. So Rashi does not really speak about this. He says, Gidal HaMelech V'Goymer, and even though Rashi, when he transcribes the words, he says, Gidal HaMelech, the words are Gidal HaMelech, as Haman Rashi says, V'Gomer, instead of writing Achashverosh, but it would seem to me that the V'Gomer refers also to the V'Yinaseyu. He's talking about, whenever Rashi says V'Gomer, it's like, etc. Etc. means, it's not just referring, explaining these verses, explaining the whole business. And Rashi simply leaves with the idea that Haman is being promoted and raised, this is the Makkah, this is the assault, this is the problem, this is the illness, this is the malaise, but the refua, the healing, has been, has been created previously already. So the, the Medesh Rabbah says, on the words, Vayinasa Ehu, that he raised him up, the Medesh Rabbah, in, of, in, 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 of Megil Sester says, it says, Bifreyach Rashoyim Kameyesev, Lehisham Damadayad, that the, David Amalek says in Tillam that they are scattered like, like grass. They first sprout like mushrooms, like grass. And then Lehishamdom, it's taken down. And it says, Hashem raises up these, these nations, evil nations, and then hurls them down. So this teaches us, says the Medrash, Malamed, that the enemies of God, before Mapalasan, Him is Godlin. First they become raised up, and they have. A big fall. Not a little fall, a big fall. By Haman it says, Vayinasehu, he raised him up. Vayasam Eskiso, he raised up his chair. Mi'al above all of the other ministers. And then it says, when Haman reaches the climax of his career, when he's most powerful, when he's almost a king, because now the power of life and death is in his hands, he fingers Mordechai for assassination. Before he has, all the Jews are slated for his final solution, but he fingers Mordechai specifically, he says, I'm after going after him. And at that moment, he is hung. So he reaches the climax, he's raised up to the highest level he ever was, and that's, that's, that's the way of Hashem. So, raise him up, and then put him down. What is the, what is the, the, the redundancy, though? Why does it say Gidal, and then Vayinasa Ehu? So the Malbim says something very interesting. Minimusi HaMalachim says the Malbim. In the etiquette of royals, ma, royal etiquette, or the, the, the manner of monarchs, is You don't suddenly raise up an ordinary person to become almost second to the king. From the lowest level of civilization or society, pick him up to the highest. It's not, it's not healthy. What do you do? You slowly promote him. You can maybe quickly promote him, but you still have to promote him. There has to be, there has to be some kind of system. The Malbim says an example you'd find with regard to Yosef's rise. Even Yosef's meteoric rise to greatness happens somewhat gradually. Not in time. It's very, very quick. But there are stages. So, and, and Yosef, even when he, when he tells the story over, he says, V'yesimenu av lefaro, I have become like a father, a paternal figure, or in modern English, avuncular would probably be a better word. I'm like a, a figure, somebody who's looking out for the Pharaoh. And then he says, Ula adon, and as a master, lechol beso. Is a, is, 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 the thing is graded. 
And then after that he says, Umoshel, and a monarch or a ruler, Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim. So Achashverosh first didn't just take Haman overnight. Haman didn't become from being, you know, a backbencher to suddenly becoming the prime minister. Gidlo, he raised him up. First he put him in a cabinet. The backbencher became now very prominent from the top political positions. And then who the Malbim says, Madrega, Acha Madrega, level after level. Until he raised his position above all other positions. As the Vilna Gaon points out, that when you talk in terminology of, of, of monarchy and governance, we refer to chairs. Even in non-government positions, talk about the chair of something. Person who occupies a position of chair or chairperson, a chairman or chairwoman. In Canada, the prime minister gives a speech once a year. It's called the throne speech. Because the throne speech is, especially if you have a prime minister with a majority government, here's how we're going to govern this year. And it's done in respect of the queen's position, because the queen is the official head of state of Canada. So there's a throne. And that throne, only the queen is allowed to sit in, but it's done in front of the, in front of the throne. So the idea of, of a throne and the idea of a chair, everybody has their chair, everybody has their space. And therefore, he says, he raised him up. You look at, if you look at the Apostle he puts his, key, his chair above all other chairs. So let's, let's use let's a little, little frame this just, just, just to, to understand it more clearly. The United States of America, our closest neighbor, has three systems of government that function simultaneously. There's, a, there's an executive body, there's a legislative body, and this is a judicial body. And neither is really in charge of the other. So what happens is that certain things are executive powers. That's, that's the office of the president. That's the White House. Congress is legislative. That's elected by different people. And the House of Congress, of course, has a Senate and, a, and, a, and Congress. The congressmen and senators. And that's divided in a different way. But that's the legislative body. And then we have the courts. And the highest level of the court is the Supreme Court. So there's three levels of governance. In Canada, we have a, a British parliamentary, parliamentary system, which means that there aren't, there is no executive branch of government. What you have is a legislative body. The legislative body is called Parliament. And the Parliament is the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So the House of Commons are elected officials. And in Canada, borrowing the British, uh, British model, we have lords who are like senators. We actually call them senators here. Right? And so the House of Lords and the commoners can't go into the House of Lords and sit down. In fact, when, that, when the throne speech, when the Prime Minister goes into the, 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 the House of Lords, which is a separate hall, the Prime Minister is allowed to sit, but none of the other parliamentarians are allowed to sit. They have to stand. That's Hilchus Parliament. They have to stand, and there's a certain line they put down. Guests can sit, because you're a guest of the Lords. But a commoner can't sit in the House of Lords unless he's a guest of the Lords. And since the parliamentarians come in as parliamentarians from the House of Commons, so they have to be respectful of the House of Lords. And basically, our senators are rubber stampers. Really, that they just, you know, legislation goes through the House of Commons. That's where governance happens. That's where decisions get made. And the senators who aren't uh, elected, but rather appointed, the prime ministerial appointees, they just rubber stamp all the stuff and it goes through. And that's how the government functions. So what is, in our system, who is the head of state of Canada? The Queen. Or the Queen's representative. So when you need somebody to represent, it's, it's funny for us to think of it that way, but the person who becomes the Queen's representative, he or she, is actually the head of state. 
we tend to think of who's the head of the country. You'll think of the President of the United States as the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada as the Prime Minister of Canada because really they kind of are the same position. However, the truth is that the President is, is an executive branch of government. The President is a head of state because there's no monarchy in the United States. That's what George Washington wanted to rule out. But in Canada, there is a monarchy, the British monarchy. The fact that they're toothless and powerless is irrelevant. It's still called a monarchy, right? So, so the, the, technically, the Prime Minister is not the head of state. Practically, he is the President. The same, the same kind of thing. But what does it mean, a prime minister? In the House of Commons, they all have a little, a little desk. And everybody has a little chair. And everybody sits at his little desk and his little chair. And if you're an elected member to the parliament, you get your chair. So what is a prime minister? A party, a caucus. That's the governing caucus if you have a majority government or if you have different governments together. So you have a, 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 a government, so to speak. You have enough votes to form governance. And then the prime minister will be the leader of that party. Or if the prime minister decides to retire or take a backseat, somebody else will fill that position. Whoever will fill that position will be the prime minister. In different words, it's the prime chair. Because there are a lot of chairs, there's a prime chair. So what was Haman? He was the prime minister of Persia. That's the meaning, that's the shot of the Pasuk. And it's really interesting how little has changed in 2,500 years. <laughs> it's really safe at a system. Achashverosh had a parliament. He had, he, had, he, had, he had members of his government. Now, of course, the king had absolute power. And he could do whatever he wanted. And he did do whatever he wanted. And we learned about that. Ahasuerus actually kind of rejigged the whole country. He, re, he, he reframed the whole system. But Haman was a very powerful man. Because who was technically governing? Haman was governing Persia. The only thing that Haman needed was to make sure Ahasuerus was on his side. In theory, the United States is governed by Congress. However, the president has veto power. So that's why the president is supposed to approve what Congress does. In theory, in a good situation, Congress and president work hand in hand. So Congress says, we are the elected representatives of the people. We believe this should be law. The president says, yes, I ratify that. On rare occasions, it's supposed to be very rare, that a president uses a veto power, right? Because, but that's a check and balance that George Washington put in place. The executive branch of government can't declare war, even though he's the commander-in-chief, without approval by Congress. And Congress can't pass laws without the approval of the president. So neither actually is able to do as they please. These are supposed to be the checks and balances of power, which may or may not work, and that's, another, that's irrelevant. That's not, but I'm using only that as, as a metaphor. In our situation, the king... This is a real king. This is not a, a post-Magna Carta. This is a real king. So the real king does whatever he wants. But there are things the king's not interested in dealing with. Does he have to make legislation about garbage collection? He could care less. Who's the most beautiful woman to be his queen? That's important. That, for, this, for this, he can't rely on, on his parliament. He has to choose that himself. But when he came to deposing Vashti or dealing with Vashti, what did he do? He called together people. He wanted to have consent. He didn't want to do things. He, do, he said, what should I do? He called his advisors. Could the king do what he wants? Of course he could. So Haman is the governing power. He now was raised, raised to the position of prime minister. And there was no democratic uh, action. He didn't have any parties opposing him. Prime minister meant that he was really all-powerful, with the exception of the king. Much like, fascinatingly, Yosef. And you're going to see that there is a, there's a correlation between Yosef, who's Benjamin's brother, by the way, both of them are children of Rachel. And hold this thought for next week. Yosef's last name is, what's he called? Yosef Ha. Tzadik, and, and Mordechai is called Hatzadik. And the Nedr says they draw a commonality from their mother, Rachel. And there's a reason 
that it couldn't be the child of Yosef. It had to be a child of Binyamin, as you'll soon see. So there's all layered, one layer upon layer upon layer. This is fixing the situation with Shaul HaMelech from Binyamin. And specifically, in this, in this circumstances, it cannot be a child of Yosef. It can only be a descendant of Binyamin, as we will see. So that's the meaning of the words. That's the Vilna Garnet, the Pshat, of Vayinasa'ehu, Vayosem Eskiso. He slowly, it's, it's, it's with grades, the Malbum says, right? First thing is Gidal HaMelech. After Gidal HaMelech is Vayinasa'ehu. It's actually plural. He advances him. And after by advancing him, then by Yosem Eskiso, he's appointed prime minister. His, so he makes, he becomes a backbencher, to a frontbencher, to a cabinet member, to the key position in cabinet, and then he raises his chair above all others. He is in charge of the entire country now. And this, of course, sets the stage. So what happens? And all the servants who are in the, the um, so to speak, the gates or courtyard of the king, they kneel and prostrate before Haman. Why do they do that? Because that's what the king had commanded. But Mordechai does not bow, he does not kneel, he does not bow down. Okay, what's going on over here? How did this, this is very, so Haman, he went very, very quickly, went in not just to become prime minister, but he became almost omnipotent. He's like a god now all of a sudden. Everybody's bowing to him. They're kneeling to him. Mordechai's not going to bow. So why doesn't he bow? So the Medish Rabbah says, what was, v'chid kantaran hoyo? I think kantaran is the same word as contrarian. What was he, like a contrarian? Like a, everybody bows, I'm not going to bow. What's your problem? Avid Oxidus Hamelech was a joke. You're living in a monarchy and the king makes it an edict. Maybe if it would be a prime minister, it's what they call a halbatzara. That's, a, you know, a little problem. This is a, this is a royal edict. A melech, a king, is a person who has life and death is in his hands. What do you mean, don't bow? It's a royal edict. So the, the Medr says, when Achashverosh issued the command to bow to Haman, he engraved idolatry upon his heart. He intended that actually they should be worshipping not Haman as an individual, but Haman as a representation of a divine power. Now what does Michokak Alibai? According to most Mefarshim, it means he tattooed the image of the God they worshipped. So Haman became emblematic of the God they worshipped. And the power of Haman was seen as a godlike power. As Rashi tells us, based on this Medrash, he made himself a god. And that's why Mordechai can't bow. Ibn Ezra ratifies that. He says, yes. Yes, this indeed is correct. As Chazal say, that there was not only on his skin, but on his raiments. He walked with a big icon of whatever they were worshipping. On his hat was very visible. So he wore these raiments, which represented the religion of the day. And in that way, he steps into the role of God which is in the ancient world, many people who had great powers, it went to their head 
and they thought that they were God. They had been endowed by the gods, appointed by the gods. You understand? So this is a form of idolatry we're dealing with now. As the Or HaChayim says in his commentary, Rishon Lutzion, he says, what does, why does it say, Mardachalai lo yichre? Mardachai, it says, doesn't say he did not kneel, he says he will not kneel. Lo doesn't say lo he did not bow, it says lo he will not bow. So the Or HaChayim says, what's going on over here? What are we, we're, this is like prophetic intuition? How did everybody know what Mardachai is going to do? Why would the Pasuk speak of that in futuristic terminology instead of simply recording the matter of fact what happened? So the Orchaim explains that Mordechai, in addition to the fact that he didn't actually bow when Haman walked by as it was supposed to be done, but furthermore, Mordechai would make a point of demonstrating his unwillingness to bow. He was very public and prominent about this. Everybody knew, oh, Mordechai is the guy who's not going to bow. Haman's coming, guess who's not going to bow? They knew he's not going to bow. La means that Mordechai was in your face. If he happened to be bowing down when he was sitting in Hamalobai, he sat up. He's in your face. He was, he was a very defiant Jew. He did not bow his head in submission. And he didn't just say, I'm not going to bow. If you're bowing already, stay bowing. You know, like, what are you looking for trouble for? But he says, no, no, no. I'm not bowing for that. Or he says, He would go to the crowd. He didn't run away. Avoid the situation. You don't want to bow, so I don't avoid the situation. Mordechai says, no, no, no. I'm going to be right there. I'm not going to bow. When people, He showed him in his face. I will not bow to you. And that's why it says, Now these words are these are fighting words. It's almost like shocking words. Why is Mordechai picking a fight? Why is he looking for trouble? Why would he go out of his way to do this kind of uh, very, very defiant thing when Haman is uh, a very powerful man and there's, a, and there's even a, a royal edict? So the Rebbe once said that actually one of the most inspiring lessons of Purim is the courage of Mordechai. Is his unwillingness to bow. He said, I don't bow my head. I'm a Jew, I'm not bowing. I'm not going to kneel. In other words, people say, when Jews are not weak and meek, they bring upon themselves trouble. But in fact, the Rebbe said quite the contrary. When we are strong, and we stand by our positions, not just be contrarian. The Medrash says he wasn't a contrarian. He had a position. His position was, I am a Jew. And what is a Jew? Don't, don't ask. Tell somebody quietly. No, no, no. I'm, not I'm proud. I am a Jew. I am a Jew means I bow to God and no one else. Not just integrity. It's courage. And he, he did it in a defiant way. If you think about what's going on with Israel today and the current POTUS, President of the United States, it's, it's, like, it's pretty compelling. He's not bowing. I'm not going to bow. In other words, when, when we read about this in the Megillah and we see that ultimately... The story of the Megillah is our legacy. It's our spiritual heritage. And it talks about a story of Mordechai, Le'yichrev Le'yishtachave. That's the beginning. The beginning of the story, of the final solution, is Mordechai, Le'yichrev Le'yishtachave, which leads Haman down the path to his final solution. Because Mordechai will not bow his head. What is the end of the story? That the Jewish people have this wonderful victory 
right? We have this idea of the light, happiness, the joy, honor. It's, it's a continuum over here. It's like it starts in one place and it ends in another place. What this shows us, says the Rebbe, is that when we start off with Le'yichra we are uncompromising in our Torah values. The end result will be that we will have light and honor and joy and gladness. But chas v'shalom, when we yield to alien influences, when we bow our heads and we give up on our Jewish spirits and our, on our, on our Jewish uh, ethos, and we, we, we compromise our belief, whether it's overt or covert, but if you're compromising your belief, if you're unwilling to state who you are clearly so that others will know, invariably, we end up in big trouble. So you're going to say, but Mordechai ended up in big trouble. Not really. Not really. Because in the end, the story of the Megillah has to be taken, not as in a detailed fashion, meaning piece by piece, but you only take the story as a whole. It can't be, the Megillah can't be read out of order. It has to be read out of order. And if you want to fulfill the mitzvah of hearing the Megillah and Purim, you have to hear the Gansa Megillah. If you don't hear the Gansa, the whole Megillah, then you don't have the story of Purim. So the story of Purim is Mordechai's unyielding, defiant position when it comes to Yiddishkeit, which in the end leads to Sassim V'Simcha V'Ikar, to gladness, to honor, and joy, and light. That's, that's a, a, a deeper message that each and every one of us must internalize. Mordechai Yichre, very clear, very clear. That's, all the Mepharshim say the same thing. That's because of the idea of, of, the, of the idolatry. So the Malbim says... Does seem a little like, like, like excessive? Like, what do you have to be in the face still? So he says, first of all, usually the way of, kind of the, the manner of, of monarchy was that another person should not be given too much honor because if another person is given too much honor, who does it detract from? The king. The king doesn't want to give too much honor. Because if the king has somebody else who becomes very honored, he has to keep everybody else in check to make sure that he is the supreme leader. He's the one who's really honored. And, and actually, even we see such a thing with a Jewish king. The problem with the David HaMelech, with the Uriah HaChiti, who was murdered by Malchus, he rebels against David HaMelech when he calls Yoyav Adoini, my master, in front of David. There are no master. The king is the king is absolute. So interestingly over here, Achashverosh was ready to forego his own honor in order to promote Haman. And it's Kichain Sivola HaMelech. This is not Haman's idea. The king said to do it. And it's not only for, 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 for he's almost scorning himself. And yet, despite the fact that the king did something so unusual, that the king bestowed such great honor upon one of his servants, even if it's the prime minister, and he instructed everybody else to bestow that honor. It's called Melech Shemachal a king who forgoes his own honor to honor somebody else. And nonetheless, Mordechai didn't bow. Why? Because Mordechai bowing or avoiding to take a position by simply melting into the background and not being in your face indicates that Mordechai accepts a foreign faith. Accepting a foreign faith does not mean to formally convert or to embrace a faith system. Accepting a foreign faith means to bow one's head in submission to the ethos that it represents. And if you bow your head in submission to that, so that in that case, ultimately, 
Mordechai has not been loyal to his heritage. He hasn't been loyal to Yiddishkeit. He hasn't been loyal to Torah. And that's something Mordechai can do. We see like with the Vuchadnetzer that he fancied himself as a god. Many of the ancient kings saw themselves in these terms. So ask the question in that case, let Mordechai at least resign from the Senate. Leave the parliament. You can't. That will be a Merida B'Malchus. What's going to be your excuse? I can't sit in the Senate anymore. I can't be a politician. I don't want to, I don't want to listen to you. That itself would have put Mordechai in danger. So Mordechai is between a rock and a hard spot. He can't resign from the Senate because the king has appointed him there. And on the other hand, if he's there and people say, oh, Mordechai bows, does he? I don't think so. I didn't notice him bowing. Did you notice him not bowing? No. Okay, then Mordechai, we have a Jew in the Senate. The Jew is part of this. So the Jew comes and he sits with everybody else. He makes believe he's eating. You know, he sits and cuts the pork this way. That way he never puts it in his mouth. What does everybody see? The Jew eats. Everybody bows, the Jew bows. No, really, he didn't bow. Ha <laughs> ha, he tied his shoe every time uh, Haman walked by. What does everybody else think? So Mordechai doesn't represent himself. It's not just what he is doing as an individual. He represents Am Yisrael. And even Jews who aren't so observant, when they're in a position where they represent Am Yisrael, understood that they have to behave differently. I, I'm, I'm not mixing up my facts. Zalman Shazar went to the funeral, the largest political funeral ever in history, is the funeral of Winston Churchill. And it was on Shabbos. And Zalman Shazar was not a religious man. He was raised as a child, but he was not. He went far away from Yiddishkeit. At the end of his life, he came back to Yiddishkeit. Only at the end of his life. At that point, he was not observing Shabbos. At least not to the best of our knowledge. But he walked for an hour and a half, which was like, a, first of all, a terrible challenge for Israeli security and so on and so forth. Because he said, if I'm representing Israel, then I'm not going to drive on Shabbos. Now, imagine if Zalman Shazar understood that. Well, imagine Mordechai Adebe doesn't understand that. So Mordechai can't fade into the background. And that's why we say, He made a statement. I do not subscribe to this. I do not bow to Haman and his incarnation, his representation of, 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 of being a, a deity or being a representation of some kind of a godlike creature. And therefore, And that's Mordechai's statement and that's Mordechai's defiance. Now, this does not, in fact, go unnoticed because, as we're going to see, all the courtiers start to ask Mordechai, what are you doing? What are you doing? How come you don't bow? And this is, becomes a whole discussion. It's not a little detail. It becomes a whole major issue. Everybody knows that the Jew doesn't bow his head. They have a discussion. It reaches Haman. Haman tests the waters to be sure. And then he goes off the deep end with his unbelievable hatred to the Jewish people as we're going to see, he starts to hatch his plan of destroying not only Mordechai, but ultimately all of his co-religionists. To be continued.